tonight, you'll want to turn to Luke chapter 5. Today, we'll be in verses 1 through 11 and then 27 and 32, sort of bookending the passage we did uh, last week. Uh, as we spend a year with the Savior and going through the life of Christ. While you're turning there, let me just thank everyone for your prayers for Joanne. Uh, she is still at home. Uh, we did get to see the surgeon, and my thanks to Casey and Jeremy and Matt and David, who uh, uh, put into action laying down the paralyzed person from the roof. They got to carry her. She was in a wheelchair and down the stairs and out to the car, and then when we came back, brought her back in uh, to the house and up the stairs. Um, so we did see the surgeon, and uh, uh, the, her broken ankle was much worse than we thought. So she had a six-inch plate and 11 screws uh, put in her ankle. And she still has two small uh, broken bones in her foot and broken bone in her shoulder. So um, no weight bearing on it for four more weeks. So we will be dealing with this uh, for a month. So please keep praying. Um, <clears throat> so anyway, we do appreciate it. The, uh, let us turn to our text uh, for today. Again, Luke 5, 1 through 11, and then 27 and 32. So these are two calling passages, and they bookend the healing passages that we talked about uh, last Sunday. So listen carefully, as always, this is the Word of God. On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the Word of God, he was standing by the lake of Genesaret. And he saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put out a little from the land, and he sat down and taught the people from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing, but at your word, I will let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish, and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them, and they came and filled both the boats so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. And he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. Jumping down to verse 27. After this, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, Follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. And Levi had made him a great feast in his house, and there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with them. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for giving us the scriptures 
and making us your people. You've brought us to the Gospel of Luke this morning to hear the story of Jesus again. Help us to learn more about your Son and use this Gospel to cause us to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Remind us of who we once were, who we are now, and what you are calling us to be. So by your Spirit, open this Gospel to us and help us to come to know Christ more Help us to see wonderful things in your word. And as always, for this, we need your grace. Help us to be amazed. Help us to wonder. And so we pray. Speak through these words of this gospel today. By the power of the Holy Spirit, help us see Jesus. As we spend this year walking with him, for in his name we pray, amen and amen. Now, if you've ever gone fishing with someone who knows what he or she is doing, you'll quickly realize how little you actually know about fishing. I remember going fishing with Elon Spigner. Elon was in his mid-80s at the time, and he knew how to fish. He knew that 100% of the fish were in 10% of the water, and he knew where the percentages lie, and he always caught fish, lots of fish, Lots of big fish. I didn't catch lots of fish. I only caught a few fish, and they weren't that big. I'm not a fisherman. But Elin, at different times, took my sons David and Daniel out fishing with them, and they were much younger then. And they listened to what Elin, the fisherman, had to teach them. And they caught big fish. When Elin was 84... He was especially good friends with Daniel, who was four at the time. And one day, he and Elon went out fishing, and Daniel came home with a four-pound bass. It was almost as big as he was. And just so you don't think I'm making this up, we have a picture here. There's Daniel at four with his four-pound bass, and that's Mr. Spigner behind him true, and Daniel says, I owe him a dollar. So, if he comes visits his mother, he can collect it. So, anyways, that's the picture. So, now, if we reversed the situation, Dan's already come and visited once, so he's, he's good. Um, if he picked up some more of his junk out of my house. I, but anyways, if we reversed the situation and I was going to take Elin out to fish and tell him what to do, I'm pretty sure that he would have smiled a lot and muttered something about preachers under his breath. And that's sort of like the situation we have this morning with this text. Think about it. We have a carpenter instructing fishermen about fishing. It's the wrong person giving instructions. It's the wrong time to fish. It's the wrong place to fish. But Jesus wasn't one who always went with conventional wisdom. The creative teacher that Christ was, he used some of the common experiences of life to teach some important lessons. And he knew that most often his greatest ministry would not be with the crowds, but with individuals. So in Luke's gospel, we continue to discover how he kept chiseling into people's lives to make them his followers. And in this passage, we come upon him on one of those common days filled with common events. 
He goes down to the Sea of Galilee, where the fishermen were working. And in the midst of all of these hardworking people, he sits down to teach. We pick up with the story, uh, we pick up the story with people hearing a carpenter. Hearing a carpenter, verses 1 through 3. On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Genesaret, and he saw two boats by the lake, that the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put out a little from the land, and he sat down and taught the people from the boat. So here we have Simon Peter, his brother Andrew, and his partners James and John, recovering from a night spent fishing with nets. It is back-breaking work because it involves laying out a great net in a semicircle encompassing over 100 feet and then drawing it in hand over hand and then repeating the procedure again and again. And it's hard work that only the strong can perform. The group of fishermen had worked through the night without so much as a single fish to show for it. So at dawn, they beached their boats, ate breakfast, and under the warming sun, engaged in the tedious but necessary process of washing and mending their nets. I don't know if you've ever seen anyone wash fishing nets. They stand in the water about up to their knees, and they kind of slush the nets up and down to get the seaweed and the shells and anything messy out of them. And then they sew up the holes and arrange the nets for drying so they don't rot. And once the nets are dry, then they're folded up and put back in the boats for the next night's work. And on this particular day, that monotony is broken by the presence of this crowd of people who are pressing around Jesus to hear the word of God. We know from chapter 4 that Jesus was preaching the good news of the kingdom of God. And since he was preaching with unusual power and authority, the crowds press in, they come closer to get a good look and so they could hear him better. And Jesus is running out of room. And so Jesus asked Simon Peter if he could use his boat as sort of a floating pulpit. And so Peter and Jesus, and probably Andrew, anchored the boat a few yards offshore, and Jesus resumes teaching and his voice carrying effectively over the water to everyone gathered on the shore. And that's the scene that we have before us. And we don't know how much attention Simon Peter was paying to Jesus' uh, message. Probably after a long night's work, he's taking it easy, maybe even daydreaming, waiting for Jesus to finish so he could put his nets away. But whatever the case, Jesus soon has Peter's full attention. And so we come to this scene of the fisherman fishing for a carpenter. The fisherman is fishing for a carpenter, verses 4 through 7. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing, but at your word I will let down the nets. When they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them, and they came and filled both the boats so that they began to sink. Now, even the most dedicated fisherman has a limited supply of patience. And if the fish aren't biting, he might as well go home. And Peter is already tired from casting and retrieving his nets all night. 
And in spite of his experience and skill and effort, he had nothing to show for his work. Now imagine you have this professional fisherman, and imagine how he must have felt when the carpenter tells him to head out into the deeper water and lower his nets. He has just spent a long night fishing and with only tired muscles and empty nets to show for it. If you think about it, this is actually a pretty demanding request. Jesus is asking a man who hasn't slept all night, who spent the night examining empty mesh nets to beach the boat, load a thousand pounds of wet nets, row out into the deep water and circle around setting the nets all under a hot noonday sun. Not only is it a demanding request, but there are several things about it that require closer examination. First, it's the wrong person giving instructions. Peter has fished these waters since he was a boy. There is nothing in the craft with which he is not familiar. The habits of the fish, the hours and spots most suitable for fishing, the weather conditions, and on and on. Now what right did Jesus, a carpenter from Nazareth, which is inland, have to ask an expert Galilean fisherman, a man who has spent his entire life on the Sea of Galilee, to do his bidding? Again, we have a carpenter instructing a fisherman about fishing. It's the wrong person giving instructions. Second, it's the wrong time to fish. In Galilee, the best time to fish is during the night and the very early morning. It explains why they'd been out all night. And even though they caught nothing, the possibility of a catch is much better than in the daytime. Third, it's the wrong place to fish. Every fisherman knew the best place to catch fish is along the shore, not in the deep water. This would only bring ridicule from those who would hear about it later. So the fishing report is pretty bleak, but the command of Christ is pretty clear. Put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. You can sympathize with Peter's reluctance, and yet we appreciate his obedience. Peter has already seen what Jesus has done in the local synagogue, in his own home. He's already healed his mother-in-law. He has seen Jesus working all night long, performing wholesale healing of all the sick in Capernaum. And so now, despite all the odds being against him, Simon Peter agrees with Jesus' request, but only because it's Jesus. And he says, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing, but at your word, I will let down the nets. Now, if Peter's still yawning and rubbing his eyes as he dropped the nets over the side, he is soon shocked wide awake. The text says, when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish, and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boats to come and help them, and they came and filled both the boats so that they began to sink. So frantically, Peter starts to pull in the nets filled with fish. And if the nets are that full, the weight of the fish would start pulling the boat, not the other way around. So the second boat jumps in the action, and they're both filled so much, they're on the verge of sinking. Now these boats, if they're typical fishing boats of the time, as far as we know they were, are about 27 feet long and seven and a half feet wide. We are talking several tons of fish to fill them up. 
Now imagine the roar of the crowd to see these two boats bring in this incredible haul of fish. And so we see where human skill and wisdom proved inadequate. Humble obedience to the master produces the catch of a lifetime. Simon Peter, the fisher of fish, obeys Jesus Christ, the fisher of men. And as they say, the rest is history. It is a revealing of who Jesus was. Another massive miracle over nature that demonstrates the raw power of this Nazarene carpenter. And because Peter obeyed, we see that he is called by a carpenter. Called by a carpenter, verses 8 through 11. When Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on you will be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. The text says that Peter, Andrew, James, and John were astonished. Jesus' power has been revealed to them in a way that they would have understood better than anyone else. The miracle of the fish had been given to fishermen. They had been brought into the sphere of Jesus' kingdom power. Peter has seen this before, but now this power has been demonstrated on Peter's turf, so to speak. His sea, his boat, his nets. So the significance of this hits him as never before. And he becomes acutely aware of two things. First, Jesus is Lord. He's the Lord of the fish and Lord of the fishermen. Lord over nature and people, and Peter knew it. Second, Peter knew himself. He was a sinner. Faced with Christ's power and authority, his soul floods with a sense of his own shallowness, his own hollowness, the realization of the personal consequences of sin. In his way of thinking, the Lord and sinners don't sit in the same boat. You know, people who know they are sinners often say and do strange things. Just look at Peter. He's now confronted by the miraculous work of Christ, the one who will take away the sins of the world, and he asks the Lord to go away. Why? Because he's overcome with a sense of his own sinfulness. It's no different today. The person who says, I can't go to church because it will only remind me of how bad I am is revealing more about them than he or she might care to admit. That person is burdened with guilt, but powerless to do anything about it. When it comes to removing the burden of guilt, they're helpless. Their only salvation is found in running to Christ. But being spiritually blind, they ask him to leave. And though humble in character, Peter misunderstands how God works with those who know their own failings and turn to him. He feels that as a sinner, he has no chance with God. But Jesus shows him that this sense of being less than holy is exactly what God can work with. God can use him because Peter knew that he needed God, not the other way around. Peter thought Jesus should leave because he was in the midst of sinners. And Jesus taught Peter 
that sinners are the people that God can use the most. The text says that Peter simply follows Jesus. And Jesus calls Peter to enter into the process of gathering people and rescuing them from the dangers of a fallen world. He will be given the net of God's word and the ship of faith and the anchor of hope and all those other biblical metaphors that Jesus uses to relate the truth about himself to those who need help uh, understanding that truth. And all those tools are now Peter's. See, for Jesus, only sinners who know they are sinners, who know they need a Savior, are really useful for service. Those who think they're good enough without Jesus are left to their own devices. And just to demonstrate the point, Jesus goes on to call someone who everyone knows is a sinner. And no one thinks Jesus should call him. But again, Jesus wasn't one who always went with conventional wisdom. And so he does what nobody wants him to do. And it results in the most unlikely of people following Carpenter. We jump down to verse 27. In between, we had the healing of the leper and the paralytic, which we saw last week. Jumping to verse 27, following a carpenter. After this, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. And Levi made him a great feast in his house. And there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with him. The Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Now Jesus had just finished healing the leper and the paralytic, which we looked at last week, and now he moves on to the next town. And as he's walking out of town, he passes a tax collector named Levi. And Levi is sitting at the customs booth, or as it says here, a tax booth. If you've ever entered another country and you had to pay a customs duty, it's the same thing here. You want to pass, you have to pay the tax. However, back then, tax collectors were not very popular. Honestly, not much has changed. But then, they weren't viewed as civil servants doing their job. They had a reputation for cheating and getting as much out of people as they could. They are among the most hated men in all society. Luke 18 uh, classifies them with extortioners, unjust, and adulterers. Matthew 21 lumps them in with prostitutes. Tax collectors couldn't testify in court because it was automatically assumed that they were dishonest. And becoming a tax collector meant immediate excommunication from the synagogue. The scribes and the Pharisees linked tax collectors with sinners and stayed as far away as they could. However, Jesus not only refuses to avoid Levi, he comes as close as he can to him and he says a shocking thing. He says, follow me. And you can almost hear the crowd muttering behind him. No, not Levi. He's a tax collector. And Jesus has invited him to come be my disciple. And if the first shocking thing is Jesus inviting Levi, the second shocking thing is that Levi gets up and follows him. He just gets up, 
leaves everything and follows him. And this doesn't mean that he got up and followed him for the afternoon. It means he left being a tax collector. He follows Jesus and becomes one of his apostles. Now, you may not recognize Levi as one of the apostles because you know him by another name. The name that Jesus gave him, Matthew. Matthew is in the writer of the first book of the New Testament. And Matthew literally means gift from God. This man who stole money and taxes from the people becomes to them a gift from God. They just can't see it yet. I mean, think about this scene. Matthew is a tax collector, which means he paid the Romans a great deal of money to be allowed to collect the taxes. And after he paid the Romans off, he got to keep anything left over. So it's in his best interest to collect as much as possible. It's how he made his living. It's not a commission system. There's no percentage. The Romans said, we want this much, some set amount, and he got to keep whatever was left over. So he made sure that plenty was left over. And now this man, among the most hated people in all of Israel, left his way of earning a living and followed Jesus just the same way that Jesus, James, and John had left fishing to follow Jesus. I mean, they all followed him because they believed he really was the Messiah, and they realized something of what it meant to have the privilege of being with Jesus. And in the end, Matthew not only followed Jesus faithfully for the rest of his life, wrote the first book of the New Testament, but was killed as a martyr for his faith. Matthew, or Levi as Luke calls him, is a wonderful example of the ultimate outsider becoming an insider. Not because of anything he had done, but simply because he was called by Christ. You and I are moved to follow Christ not because of anything that we've done, but simply because we are called by Christ. The theological term is irresistible grace, which simply means that if God calls you by the power of the Holy Spirit, it is a matter of time. The Holy Spirit begins working in your heart long before you realize it, and when he does, you are his. He will not give up and he will not let you go, even if you're a tax collector sitting by the side of the road. Now, Levi has a great response to this call of Christ to follow him. Levi leaves that place where he's been collecting taxes and throws a big dinner for all of his friends so they can eat and talk with Jesus. Of course, Levi's friends are other tax collectors and other low-life people who don't have a reputation for honesty or righteousness. But now Levi has turned his resources over to reveal his newfound relationship with Christ to all his friends, and he points them to this different kind of leader, one who seeks out those who've become separated from God. And rather than avoiding them, Jesus goes out of his way to find them. Now the Pharisees and the scribes felt they've now they've got something to really that they can use against Jesus. And they criticize him and complain. Verse 30. They grumbled at his disciples saying, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? The Pharisees and the scribes felt they were too good to associate with these men. They regarded as big sinners, so they say some harsh things. They went to great lengths to avoid sinners 
in order to avoid the perception that they somehow approved of the sinner's lifestyles. These two perspectives couldn't be any more different. The Pharisees preferred some level of quarantine from sinners while Jesus sought them out, aiming for restoration of the sinner. Jesus ate with these sinners. He talked with them. He listened to them. He gives them hope. They needed his help and his love and his grace, and he judged it was the right thing to do to go to that dinner and spend time with them. The Pharisees would have never gone. They wouldn't go near these people. It didn't fit into their idea of what was proper. But with that attitude, would these people, these outsiders, have ever heard the word of God? If God himself didn't take the initiative and go to them, The outsiders, the people who don't count, understand Jesus. And in Mark's version of this story, it says in Mark 2, for there were many who followed him. The outsiders understand what's going on, and so they follow Jesus. The insiders, the one who should have known better, don't understand Jesus. The Pharisees are simply not ready to recognize Jesus, not ready to follow him, not ready to listen to him. And so they complain. But notice it's Jesus himself who answers them. Says they, they grumble at his disciples, but Jesus answers them. Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Now the Bible clearly tells us there are no perfect people. No one is righteous because of his or her own innate goodness. No one, not even one. What Jesus is saying, that it is only people who know they're sinful, who realize how much they need to be rid of their sins, who are willing to repent. He compares it with physical sickness. Only people who know they're sick and need a doctor actually go to the doctor. People don't go to the doctor if they don't think they're sick, even if in reality they're dying. When I go to the doctor, I'm admitting the reality of several things. I'm sick, I need help, and I can't help myself. And Jesus' call goes out to those who are spiritually sick, recognizing they need help. And so Jesus calls those who are spiritually sick and know it. Jesus is saying he's gone to dinner with people who know they're sinners and who are more than ready to listen to him more than eager to find out what he has to say. Much more than the proud Pharisees who are filled with self-righteousness. They're filled with pride about their own goodness. A goodness that thinks that makes, they think makes them better than these other men, different than these other men. Better than Jesus. Now that sounds terrible, but it's a trap that people fall into all the time. In every time period in history, people think they're better than God. People think they're quite capable of telling God what to do. Pharisees are alive and well today. And Pharisees still go out of their way to avoid sinners. I say that as one who would call himself a recovering Pharisee, and just maybe some of you are too. Maybe some of you are still. 
So the question to ask yourself is, which are you? Are you Levi or are you the Pharisee? I mean, let's leave, leave Levi uh, for a minute. Let's look at the Pharisee. Because far too often, many of us were once like Levi the outsider, but then Christ called us, brought grace to our life, and somehow over the years, we've forgotten what it was like to be the outsider. We've been insiders now for so long. One of my preaching professors years ago told me, are you able to preach to the person you used to be? That's, I've never forgotten that. That stuck with me. Because sometimes, somehow, over the years, we've forgotten what it was like to be the outsider. We've been insiders for so long. And we've become like the Pharisee. And we look down on the outsiders, even though we used to be one. And we substitute the knowledge of God for actually knowing God. And we can articulate the gospel, just no longer experience it as a power in our life. And to be honest, it's a common story. We begin the Christian life well, but gradually find ourselves experiencing little or or no real spiritual transformation in our lives. We still believe all the right doctrine. We may still practice all the right disciplines, but our hearts remain unchanged and they grow cold. And our relationship with God is no longer real and personal, but it's cold and distant. And we know something's wrong. We're just not sure what it is. We need the gospel just as much as Levi, except that Levi knew he needed, and often we don't. It is the transforming grace of the gospel which not only brings us to Christ, but keeps us there. It not only brings us forgiveness, but it changes us into real worshipers of God and authentic lovers of other people. The Pharisees knew spiritual things were hard to do, but rather than turn to God in faith and repentance, they developed their own way of dealing with things. You might call it try harder. Try harder not to get angry. Try harder not to be worried. Try harder to be more loving. Try harder to be more religious. And you can only hear so many spiritual pep talks about trying harder before you lapse into a spiritual denial and despair over the lack of any real spiritual reality in our souls. The Apostle Paul confronted the Galatian church about this very thing in Galatians 3. He said, are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? The NIV says, by human effort. The reason the try-harder mentality leaves us unchanged and frustrated because it doesn't get to the root of the problem. Our root problem is not our external behavior, it's sin, and sin is a matter of the heart. The great theologian Jonathan Edwards wrote in his book Religious Affections, a person who has knowledge of doctrine and theology only without religious affections has never engaged in true religion. How does the power of the gospel transform sinful hearts? The same way it did when you started this journey called Christianity. When Jesus began preaching, he said, Mark 1, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Coming to Christ in repentance and faith 
is meant to be more than a one-time event that saves us from the penalty of sin. Repentance and faith is a God-ordained process by which we return continually to Christ day by day to be saved not just from the penalty of sin, but from the power of sin and have our hearts transformed. And through repentance, we pull our hearts' affections away from our idols, and by faith, we put them back on Christ. But once again, easier said than done. How do we put our faith back on Christ? Faith, believing, requires a continual rehearsing of and delighting in the many privileges that are ours in Christ. First, you are forgiven. No matter how great your fear, no matter how much you feel condemned, in Christ you are completely forgiven. Second, you are accepted. In Christ... No matter how much you feel rejected, because of Christ's perfect righteousness, his active obedience has been given to you, you are totally accepted. And third, in Christ you are loved. In fact, there is nothing you can do uh, to get God to love you any more or any less than he loves you right now. That's the day-to-day power of the gospel. And we need to preach it to ourselves every day. You should probably start now. You need to pray. Take a moment to do that, and then I'll close. Let's pray together. Our Lord and our God, thank you that you have spoken to us by your Son. Open our eyes that we might see our sin and then see our Savior. Open our eyes that we might remember how we were once the outsider, and you called us to repent and believe in the gospel. Lord, often now we're more like the Pharisee who looks down on the person we used to be. Forgive us for our arrogance. Remind us that the call to repent is still for us. The call to believe is still what we need. And the call to forgive, accept, and love others is simply what it means to follow Jesus. And help us to do just that, follow Jesus. And so we ask these things in the name of your Son, our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen.